0: You are listening to The Dylan Taunt's Podcast. Welcome to this special edition of Million Dollar Bash. It's that million dollar bash. The following was recorded on June 2nd, 2023 at the World of Bob Dylan Conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was one of two panels on the philosophy of modern song a book that Bob Dylan released in fall of 2022. You will first hear from Court Carney, who will introduce the panel and the panelists. Following that, Erin Callahan will give her paper, followed by Court Carney again, and then Jim Salvucci.
1: The title of this panel is the philosophy of modern song and the ambi-modernist impulse, which makes a lot of sense if you were the one typing those words, me, and, and I think there's some meaning there. On the other hand, I think there is a, a lot of uh, breadth here that we're gonna play with. Um, this is the second panel of, of, of looking at this from a, a, maybe a different angle than we, we once thought. Um, I think a lot of the commentary was on the song selection. There was a lot of commentary on the question of breadth. There was commentary on, is it even a philosophy? And I dare say there might actually be, sort of, uh, but maybe not in the ways that people are kind of always thinking about. And I think that there's been a lot of conversation about the omissions, the ins, the outs, and uh, language and gender. And I think what this panel is kind of doing is saying that there's other paths into this. Um, So, three papers three kind of engaging looks at, well two engaging looks and whatever I'm doing, uh, looking at maybe a new context or a different context or perhaps uh, contexts to look at this. Uh, I'm gonna introduce our panelists at first and then we can go through there. Uh, Erin Callahan is up first. Uh, Her paper explores Dylan's comments on and critique of the relationship and tensions between artistic creation and the commodification of art consumed as entertainment that leads to its dilution or sanitization. Uh, She is from living in Houston, Texas. I should not say from Houston, Texas. She's living in Houston, Texas, where she teaches English at San Jacinto College. She has presented and published on Dylan and is currently co-editing a volume with me on Dylan's interpretive set lists, looking at set lists. And this book is, and there's several authors on this collection here with us today. Uh, This book is currently in press with Rutledge and should be out uh, fairly priced for no one uh, very shortly. Uh, We will be more than willing to, happy to entertain you with what the set list book is all about, but there's some really great essays in there. um, And we're really excited about that. I'm a professor of history at at Stephen F. Austin State University. I also live in Houston. And because of Houston, she lives in Houston, I live in Houston, we are literally hours apart from one another. And I think that is a telling telling moment for all of us. Um, I am uh, a professor of history, and I have a book in press on the cultural significance and memory of Nathan Bedford Forrest, which has nothing to do with this panel or conference. And we're probably lucky for that. But if you're into Civil War memory, that should be out soon. And Jim Salvucci, an English professor by training, is a recovering academic. He has presented on Bob Dylan at the First World of Bob Dylan Conference, as well as in such locales as France and India, and has taught a course on Dylan for many years. He has published on Dylan in the 21st Century, Dylan, and the Bob Dylan Review. And he is the founder and keeper of the Dylan Taunts, a collaborative blog on podcasts. and there's many of us who have been part of this, too. And this is an ongoing uh, podcast substack. Cool things, maybe some fun things, maybe some serious things, all, all told. So let's start with Erin. Uh, She'll be up first, and then uh, ready to go. You.
2: I think I'll do that. All right. Good afternoon. So Court did a lovely introduction, but I did change. I shifted as we do when we write, and so um, you'll see that I don't think now that it is the solution of art so much as Dylan is showing us where there is resistance, intellectual resistance, in plain sight. In Chronicles, when Dylan writes, I just thought of mainstream culture as lame as hell and a big trick. It's reasonable that he viewed mainstream culture as lame as hell because it mindlessly affirmed hegemonic post-industrial values. The big trick of mainstream culture is that those in control of the government, military, and economy in America, the power elite, as C. Wright Mills coined them, exploited exploited their positions of power and celebrity culture to distract and manipulate mass society. Mills writes, as each of these domains uh, has coincided with the others, as decisions tend to become total in their consequence, the leading men in each of these three domains of power, the warlords, corporate chieftains, the political directorate, tend to come together to form an elite power in America. Particularly in the post-World War II era when Mills wrote The Power Elite and The Sociological Imagination, he argued that the pace at which contemporary society changed exceeded people's ability to adjust or to orient themselves in accordance with cherished values. It's not only that American society was changing, but also in the way way in and the rate at which those changes occurred that caused a values crisis among Americans who felt their values threatened. Mills continues, even when they do not panic, men often sense that older ways of feeling feeling and thinking have collapsed and that newer beginnings are ambiguous to the point of moral stasis. Dylan echoed Mills' ideas earlier in Chronicles when describing post-World War II America. He wrote, quote, The world was being blown apart and chaos was already driving its fist into the face of all its visitors. If you were born around this time or were living or alive, you could feel the old world go and the new one beginning. Part of that change was caused by atomic anxiety and the other was caused by the centralization of power via the power league. Both led to the conformity of the 1950s, a homogenization of culture and society largely through mass media transmission and consumption. Dylan's formative years in Hibbing, a town that, quote, looked like every other town out of the 40s and 50s, provided little opportunity for rebellion due to its brutal climate and proximity to the whole rust-mahoning open pit. Uh, However, a radio with a turntable in the basement of his childhood home provided the escape he needed. Listening to Drifting Too Far from the Shore, Dylan describes that the sound of that record made me feel like I was somebody else. These were the songs that opened his mind to the possibilities outside of and provided intellectual and artistic resistance against mainstream culture. In Philosophy of Modern Song, Dylan states, It's what a song makes you feel about your own life that's important. And that Ricky Nelson made rock and roll part of the family, magically transforming the image of black and white television into the American dream. But mostly it was the records that did it. Subsequently, in Philosophy of Modern Song, he also demonstrates how the songs he included and deconstructed, many of which he likely listened to on that radio radio during his youth, challenge the zeitgeist of their social and cultural moments. There are several ways in which Dylan employs Mill's theories. First, he does does so through an examination of how mass media serves the interests of the power elite. In Mill's assessment, centralization of corporate media markets through radio, television, and movies uh, has diminished the quality of public public discourse. As a result, with increased with the increased means of mass persuasion that are available, the public of public opinion has become the object of efforts to control, manage, and mani- manipulate, and increasingly intimidate. This creates a single national media market that shares fluency in, is influenced by, and responds to the signs, signals, logos, slogans, and jargon of corporations and mass media. The result of this increasing influence, according to Mills, is that it gives people in mass society an identity, aspirations, technique to fulfill their aspirations, and an escape. That idea reinforced heteronormative patriarchal middle class consumer culture. It provided a template of how modern folks should look, act, dress, what jobs they should have, and what they should pur- purchase. Americans aspire to own a home in the, in the suburbs, have a family, Own the newest appliances, cars, or clothes, based largely on the wave of new media in uh, in their lives. Basically, to keep up with the Joneses, that lifestyle was most successfully achieved through men securing a good or stable job, while women took care of the children and the house. This then leads to anxieties and frustration as people attempted to achieve the ideal. Uh, and of those who fail to live up to it, an alienation of those who fail or refuse to conform. Second, by applying Mills' theories to the songs and the philosophy of modern song, Dylan demonstrates how the ideas communicated through the songs, nearly all of which achieved success on one or several of Billboard's charts, uh, provided intellectual resistance to the power elite in plain sight. To start, Dylan's critique of the power elite centers on the exploitation of individuals and society's institutions through their modeled with the control of American life. He indicts them as, quote, common criminals, end quote. In chapter 10, Jesse James, writing, quote, criminals can wear badges, army uniforms, or even sit in the House of Representatives. They can be billionaires, corporate raiders, or stockbroker analysts, even medical doctors. All of these figures hold positions of authority or power in which they control laws, justice, the economy, and defense. They also benefit from and profit from reciprocal protection of these institutions. They are the quote aristocratic establishment, the upper class landowners in Dylan's chapter on Pancho and Lefty. Similarly, Big Bossman depicts the bourgeoisie, middle class management, using Mill's, lang- Mill's own language, chieftain and overlord. The boss man overworks his employees and is unfazed by labor unions, uprising, revolts, empty threats, because he's, quote, above it all, end quote. In Chapter 4, Take Me From This Garden of Evil, Dylan uses Mill's language again to describe the collapse of old values to moral ambiguity. He writes, quote, the song presses the panic button, end quote, that the newer beginning is a garden of corporate lust, sexual greed, gratuitous cruelty, and commonplace insanity." End quote. The masses of people Dylan refers to have undoubtedly been hypnotized by mass media, consuming it without giving a thought to its meaning or its consequences. The characters in these songs recognize the ubiquitous influence of the power elite and either reject participation outright or ask to be delivered from it. Similarly, throughout the philosophy of modern song. Dylan highlights the centralized economic control of corporations in American life. During this period, national chains replaced small businesses and local ads were replaced by national spots. This consolidated brand identity, brand recognition, and consumer appetites. Additionally, corporations provided stable employment with opportunities for advancement, benefits, and a retirement plan. Most of the chapters in philosophy of modern song some aspect of consumer culture, words like merchandise, manufactured, cars, to references of specific cars like Cadillacs um, that are associated with affluence, uh, designer watches like Rolex or uh, roo if you will, to smartphones, to descriptions of products and fine clothing accompanied by supporting images. The reader's mass media literacy aids in making those connections between image and word, sign and signified, effective. The title of the book's first song, Detroit City, is accompanied by an image of the Ford Motor Company factory that reinforces Dylan's analysis. The character in the song uh, left his rural hometown to secure employment and the American dream in the city. Dylan writes, when this song was written, Detroit was a place to go to, to run to. New jobs, new hopes, new opportunities. However, the singer's fantasy to go home and leave the monotony of his days in the factory and nights at the bar expresses his desire to escape modern life and return to something familiar or comfortable. The singer isn't really a dreamer, but someone who is, quote, caught up in a fantasy of the way things used to be. He is Mill's modern man, the same person Dylan referred to in Chronicles, affected by the swift changes in American life. The song works, as Dylan writes, because listeners relate to the anxiety and disillusion expressed by it. This guy could easily be Jackson Brown's pretender a guy who has sold himself for a bit of the American dream, whose life is a broken record of home and work, of his success depending upon being someone he's not, of being trapped in a lesser world in which he abandons a life of passion, of music and art. Dylan describes the Pretender's middle class life as single-minded capitulation, of buying everything in every window display and commercial ad. The Pretender also appears in ball of confusion. Performing a prescribed role described as a new form of oppression and every symbol of institutional power is a corrupt failure. In Big Boss Man, Dylan describes the overworked employee as modern man, servile, a hypocritical ass kisser, a yes man who finds his escape through movies, movies that reinforce images of who he should be but who he's not. All of these figures depict unsatisfying or unfulfilling images of those who have achieved or strive to achieve success in post-industrial, middle-class American life, the American dream. In contrast, Dylan's outlaws, Poncho and Lefty, outlaws like them, or those who sing about them, quote, exploit there the middle classes, false values, materialism, hypocrisy, and insecurities. Further, Dylan's discussions on war expose the military and industrial complex and underline the connection between history-making events, the decision-makers, and the effects of those events. His analysis of Webb Pierce's There Stands the Glass focuses on a soldier who wrestles with the degenerate and demonic things he has seen and done that reduce him to mental bondage. Attending a ritual celebration where he's being honored as a hero, he feels he's surrounded by the enemy. Dylan notes the veteran has been, quote, betrayed by politicians, stabbed in the back by legislators and members of his own government. Here, he clearly demonstrates the effects of politicians' decisions to send soldiers to war on the individual men and women who were deployed. The veteran feels a crisis of values due to his participation in the activities of war that allowed him to be, become, quote, unfaithful to the human spirit. Dylan raises the question of whether the veteran would regret or be haunted by his actions if he had been on the winning side of the war. The passage passages opening. It's hard to be on the losing end of a lost cause, a lost enterprise, a cause with no object or pur- purpose, unequivocally false from start to finish, suggests a tenuous relationship between the abstract political decisions made to enter wars and the consequences of those decisions on individuals' lives. This idea is developed further in Chapter 43, Edward Starr's, Edwin Starr's recording of the Temptation Song War, which reads like an extension of Mill's work, drawing a line from World War II, to the veteran in there stands the glass, forward through both Gulf, to both Gulf Wars. Citing a sequence in the documentary The Fog of War, Dylan explains how the former Defense Secretary Robert McNamara and General Curtis LeMay would have been, quote, Quote, prosecuted as war criminals if they had lost the war. Dylan notes, quote, for the rest of his life, McNamara wrestled with the question, what makes it immoral if you lose, but not if you win? This, too, is a question that tortured the veteran, who has a lot to answer for, and there stands the glass. The war crimes inspl- explained in both songs, Chapters are similar, rape and unmitigated violence against civilians, including women and children. The difference is just the perceived or actual victor in and justification of the war. Shifting to both Gulf Wars, waged by the power elite and administrations of a single family, Dylan stresses the dubious justification for both wars. Grayley Heron's analysis of chapter 15's whiff and poof song for the Dylan Taunt substack illuminates the song's reference to the whiffen, po- whiffen poofs. Quote, an independent a cappella group at Yale University, end quote, who, en- who counted as, its er- as an early member Prescott Bush, father of George H.W. Bush, and grandfather of George W. Bush. Heron also notes Dylan's references to the more secretive and exclusive Yale Society Skull and Bones whose, quote, members are sworn to a lifelong secrecy about the group, but alumni from Skull and Bones have gone on to exert major power in the United States and across the globe, end quote. And I included Colin Powell because he was influential in both. In coordination, Mills asserts that the link among institutions of modern society, families, and churches, and schools provide the basis for and support the centralization of power and that these hierarchies of state, corporation, and army Constitute the means of that power. Giving a bit of cover to HW because of Iraq's invasion, because Iraq's invasion of Kuwait prompted the first Gulf War. Dylan focuses on post-9/11 paranoia and false claims that Iraq's possession of Iraq's possession of ma- weapons of mass destruction underlying the 2003 invasion under George W. Bush as more problematic and indicative of the continued consolidation and centralization of power among America's power elite in the 21st century. He concludes by returning to LeMay's thoughts on war criminals, suggest- suggesting that both Bushes would be considered as such, but ends the chapter um, with an indictment as, um, of Americans as war criminals for supporting war propaganda, not asking questions, and most importantly, not acting to prevent or end conflicts. Further echoing Mills, Dylan's Inclusion of War, a song that replaced Bread's Make It With You on Billboard's Top 40, spending three weeks at number one in August and September 1970, and listed as the fifth most popular song of that year. Though Dylan is cynical about the purpose of the song, arguing it's clear that one answer to the question posited in the song is the bottom line, and links it to the earlier Motown hit Money, he uses it to make a larger point to parallel war profiteering and the atrocities of war. He refers to Smedley D. Butler, whose speech, War is a Racket, was, quote, written by a major general in the Marines, who is an American military hero, but became disillusioned with war profiteering, propaganda, and injustice of the military, industrial, and intelligence foreign policy establishments, and came to oppose American involvement in foreign wars designed to benefit financial and industrial interests, end quote. Smedley, quote, confessed to his own actions on multiple battlefronts and that hurt large numbers of people to ensure the profits of a few. Here we can imagine Smedley as the celebrated, yet tortured veteran, and there stands a glass. Dylan then cites the labor leader and civil rights leader, Acer Philip Randolph, who, quote, said in 1925, make wars unprofitable and you make them impossible. However, as long as the war remains lucrative, news media advertising. Movies and television will continue to promote it as necessary to national security. Just as Dylan demonstrates how the songs and philosophy of modern song point to the adverse effects of media government corporations and the military, he also shows readers a prescription for rebelling (laughs) against the the traps of modern post-industrial consumer society. Art, love, and movement. Allusions to, references to, and quotes from poetry, literature, music, and visual art stand in contract contrast to the over-commodified kitsch of most mainstream culture. His remedy for the modern man and big boss, boss man uh, is rivers of poetry and music. He also refers to the pretender as someone who has abandoned music and art and, and poetry. The many songs Dylan includes about love and his interspersed commentary on love suggests that love, not love is a legal agreement or a social contract, but passionate love is a salve. Dylan gives us songs like On the Road Again, Truckin', Keys to the Highway, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, images of movement, of becoming, of rejecting stasis or complacency. Being on the road again keeps you from being bogged down by anything, even the monotony of daily chores like taking out the garbage. Perhaps this is the philosophy of modern song. The place where the personal, the problems of modern life as they affect individuals becomes the political, identifying and commenting on the issues of society that contribute to or cause the problems of individual people. To be sure, Dylan would argue that he's apolitical. That's fair. But you can't argue, you can't ignore his critiques of conformity and of power struggles that exploit and control social and cultural institutions. mainstream culture, though mainstream culture is generally a tool of the power elite, passively consumed without considerations of its effects or consequences, Thoughtful considerations, deconstructions, and examinations of it, as Dylan has provided in the philosophy of modern song, reveal substance that challenges its typical reception. That may be the signal point. Art, even art conceived, produced, and consumed in mainstream popular culture, serves as an intellectual resistance to the problem faced in contemporary society.
1: Thank you, Aaron. When I first read this book, it seemed overwhelming. So many different songs and interpretations. Was it a giant puzzle? Was it a miniature made maximal in terms of like maybe a Joseph Cornell box? Intricate, mysterious. But what was the key? There was a flurry of great immediate takes. And by being great, I mean broadly defined great. But a lot of immediate takes. Uh, This song opens up this avenue. Can you believe what this song you've never heard of says about our history? A rich sandbox for the uh, uh, individuals of our world to dig into and find meaning out of. And yet something else throbbed from these pages, less connected to the uh, specific songs and more akin to a threat or a sadness or a dissonant, incoherent hum. I began to think of the book uh, less in terms of the songs and uh, what Dylan likes or by admission dislikes. Uh, and certainly removed from the language used Or authorial identity Or an accounting of demographics All of which are worthy and important subjects And topics And these topics will continue to spin out Thoughtful and engaged work But I kept drawing down to something else In the book's totality A new song began, began to emerge But one of loss Of searching, of ambivalence Of anti-modernism And if not anti-modernism At least its cousin, ambimodernism. modernism This idea of being torn or into the past, but a past that is also very difficult to define. I began to situate Dylan's book within a larger age of discontent. Uh, The book not being a book of the 1950s, but a book of 2022, of looking at when that book comes out, regardless of when it was written or how it was written, the idea that it comes out at this very particular moment of discontent. From films and books and infinite news pieces, The past couple of years has been defined by a particular form of cultural discontent, a gloominess brought about by the modern condition, and then, of course, reflecting and refracting it, a fear of AI on one hand, and a growing move toward neo-luddism, which is a very challenging term Uh, we can touch on, but it's interesting that pops up a lot, attention, to be sure, but also, of course, a connection. We have lost a lot and traditionalism, so long the stranglehold of a particular party, whether in good faith or not, has collapsed. So even we have a generational shift away from decorum, perhaps. And what we see in the news is so far removed from what what used to be seen as out of the, the normal. When you have someone told off mic to call for decorum in a congressional meeting, and that call is then met with laughter, you know something else is afoot. This is where we are forced to live right now. A look at the philosophy of modern songs through this lens, as well as somewhat detached from the songs themselves, allows for a perspective that is at once defiant and driving. None of this is new, of course. World gone wrong, and much of this modernist contempt leaches into the soil of the blues, songs, and motifs that have defined large parts of his career. And Grail Marcus and his Uh, A newsletter of sorts uh, just recently did a, a timely reprint of an old column on World Gone Wrong and Good As I've Been to You. And he says in this, on both records, the music is all about values, what counts, what doesn't, what lasts, and what shouldn't. As Dylan himself notes, it's about ambiguity, the fortunes of the privileged elite, flood control, watching the red dawn, not bothering to dress. Dylan has long walked through this undergrowth of dissatisfaction and world weariness. And in some ways, this entire discussion dates back to the various waves of post-industrial fears, which is what we were just talking about. Nostalgia plays a role here, as we have seen, but also something much thornier. Not that nostalgia isn't thorny on its own. I think something newer and more specific is also happening here. He checks in with this concept throughout uh, the book. Uh, uh, I don't see Dylan as offering a gauzy-eyed or uncritical take on the past. I don't think that's it at all. And, and, and there is this idea that I don't, think there, I don't think he's saying there's a particular moment, whether it's 1947 or 1957 or what have you, that has meaning that, that we, we, we need to go back to. But in another way, I think he is being a little nuanced here. There's clearly a sense of loss or a sense of something that has been lost, or at least the options are lost, or what have you. As Marcus, what counts, what doesn't, what lasts, what shouldn't. When you start getting away from the actual songs and you start looking at the chapters as maybe another text divorced from this, it stands out. I want to go through a few. Uh, uh, I was telling uh, Rob Virginio that there are 54 footnotes in this, and we're going through them all. None of that is true. And for my panel yesterday who are thinking, he knows what a footnote is? Yeah, so A and B, alpha and omega. <laughs> so this is Dylan talking. Well, the, Dylan, the author Dylan of the book, we can go with that. You want to go back home. You demand that of yourself. You've got a thirst and a hunger and a need. You've got to get up and go, beat it and push off. Time to say adios. You want to go home. No one's going to pepper you with relentless questions. You're going back to where you can clear your life up, going back to the people of understanding, the people who know you best. Like thousands of others, he left the farm, came to the big city to get ahead, and got lost. Later, why all the monotonous and lifeless music that plays inside your head? Later, but you're in a limbo, and you're shouting at anyone who'll listen. You want to be emancipated from all the hokum. You don't want to daydream your life away. You want to get beyond the borderlands, and you've been ruminating too long. It's a great line. There is no peace in the valley. This is a garden of corporate lust, sexual greed, gratuitous cruelty, and commonplace insanity. Hypnotize masses of people and die-in-the-wool assholes, and the singer wants to be delivered from it. Who won it? Another song. At your best, you're Sancho Panza. At your worst, you get left behind. You have to open up your eyes before it's too late. People with no discernible income buy flawless knockoff watches with one-letter misspellings that was mentioned earlier to thwart copyright. And then wealthy people buy the same Rulex so their six-figure real watches won't be stolen when they're out for dinner. The sun will shine, the wind will blow, women will come and go, but before we can appreciate the wonders of nature or swell love, swear love to any of the women, he must have money, as far as enlightenment goes. Weak tea indeed. Every generation gets to pick and choose what they want from the generations that came before, with the same arrogance and ego-driven self-importance that the previous generations have when they pick the bones of the ones before them. This is just a sampling. We're only into the first few chapters and it's a constant refrain of of what's going on here. What's been lost? Do we go back? If we go back, what does that mean? Now you're obsolete and out of date and you're walking in the night down by the river, but the water's dead. Another girl has got her hand on your shoulder. You're not always at your best. These nonconformist thieves attack the middle class, taking advantage of and exploiting their false values, materialism, hypocrisy, insecurities. In this song, your happiness lies beyond the wide sea, and to get there, you have to cross the great unknown. Desire fades, but traffic goes on forever. You can see what people ought to do, but they're not the things that you ought to do. But people confuse tradition with calcification. We listen to an old record and imagine it sealed in amber, a piece of nostalgia that exists for our own needs. A snapshot can be riveting and artful, but it is the choice of the single moment plucked from the stream moments that makes it immortal. All hell is breaking loose, but the guy is still living by the river, which gives him some type of hope and a way to escape from the difficulty. He goes on, he goes on. Blue Bayou opens up this again. We're looking forward to contentment and happiness, although right now you're friendless, all by yourself, and feel marooned, ill at ease, and edgy. It's like he knows me. The Midnight Rider wants to return things back to a pre-corporate economic order and wipe the slate clean. The, wet, the Midnight Rider has sympathizers. Your free-loving days are winding down and in the bag. This song offers a standard, a jaundiced view of the current state of the world, both when the songs were written and sadly now. This is a song about being on the move and keeping moving, being born on the move, the grand tour, one town, a jumping off place to the next, no dead ends. Knowledge is a good thing, but one of the potentially dangerous side effects is that as the field of knowledge gets wider, our skin is stretched thinner. People try different ways to insulate themselves as their nerves are rubbed raw. Modern man is your employee, servile, hypocritical. He's the informed citizen, the rational being. It would take oceans of water to cleanse him from his previous lives. Way before taunts of OK Boomer and the calling of people with experience, the pejorative term old's. This country has had a tendency to isolate the grizzled dotard. Old and in the way is the modern way and a lot of Americans treat the elderly. Being misunderstood can get on your nerves. I love that. Tramps, mavericks, the object of each other's affection, enraptured with each other and creating an alliance. You're here to tell a different story, a bird of another feather. Sequels and remakes roll off the assembly line nowadays with alarming frequency and astronomical budgets that they still can't recognize the magic and wonder of the originals. Those who dismiss movies from before their time as merely simplistic are missing out. I go to bed in hotel rooms with Turner Classic Movies, and there's a beautiful one this morning, uh, way too early, of a guy who was 50 years old. And it's this incredibly grizzled man who's lost everything. And then he's told this lesson of what other people have gone through. And that person, of course, Abraham Lincoln. And you too can have the successful later life of an elderly Abraham Lincoln. There are holes in this, but there's something going on there. You have these uh, these repetitions, the unconventional life destroyed by normalcy, the constriction of creativity, the fear of being hemmed in, of being suffocated, vitality snuffed out by those Around you, all of the thou musts, the thou shalts, the thou must nots, the shall nots. It's all about escape, the limbo, the reinvention, obsolescence, out of date, despair, suffering, mistranslation, generational shifts, generational static and desperation. The noise of the now drowning out what could be or could have been. Not negative, not positive, not really optimistic, not really pessimistic. A more self assured Zen take on loss. What have we lost? Who are the heroes? the deserter, the hero, the the outlaw, the hobo, the maverick, the tramp. The enduring heroes of Dylan's, no surprise here. But clearly this book has a thumb on the scale in terms of which values and needs and desires are important. Early reviews of the book took this title as a joke or as an oversell. How do these songs cohere to something resembling a philosophy? And yet from a distance, at least one perspective yields something sort of definitive. How do we deal with the modern world? Here are the several dozen songs that perhaps provide a path. Everyone said there's no philosophy. And what's modern mean? I think it's all right there. I think he's talking it through with all of this. Uh, We could spend forever talking about the word modern and modernism, of course. But I think there's something interesting. In the end of 2022 and into 23, as this book was coming out, you had a number of big media pieces on Gen Z. They gotten tired of discussing how millennials had destroyed everything from doorbells to what have you. And now there's a new culture for the not-for-us. The Gen Z generation demanded something different, something new, something that was commonplace 25 years ago never made sense now. In December 2022, the New York Times ran a piece on Luddite teens. Every new generation discovers Kerouac, and now it was poetry and Nokia flip phones. The Luddite club wanted wanted a reprieve from constant connection in social media, and they then were met with a backlash. You follow your kids now. We track them. It's a little Orwellian, I guess. This is a person talking in the piece. But we're the helicopter parent generation, so when she got rid of the iPhone, that presented a problem for us. A teacher said, I think it's a great conversation they're having, and there's no right answer. In January of this year, the New York Times, just a few weeks later, Uh, had a whole story on teens who wanted standalone digital cameras. We're not going back to the Lomography or the Polaroid. We're going to actual just the the, the digital digital cameras that were everywhere. Over the past past few years, nostalgia for the Y2K era, let that sink into your dying, (laughs) windswept bones. A time of both tech and enthusiasm and existential dread dread that spanned the late 90s and early 2000s. When I look back at my digital photos, I have very specific memories attached to them, one person says. When I go through the camera roll on my phone, I sort of remember the moment it's not special. Of course, AI complicates this. Of course, this is nothing new, too. Eric Hobbsbaum in the Machine Breakers essay is right here. But more noise was felt in art and film. You had uh, films in the discourse such as Tar, which I don't think got enough credit for doing anything that it did and its take on generational critique and criticism. The Fablemans works into this as well. White Noise that came and went very quickly, released just a couple of weeks after Philosophy of Modern Song with its satire, 2022 by way of 1985, of consumerism and consumption. These moments lead us to something. I think there's a, a group of moments here that really work to show us what's going on. I think the movie that best captures the tensions here which at first glance may seem strange, but I think it's real, is Nope, Jordan Peele's film. From its opening title card to its plot protection of analog cameras and vinyl records, to its questioning of 1990s media and nostalgia, to its provocative climax at the winking, well, old-timey, non-electric, large-format camera buried in the sand, Nope prods the audience to examine, horrifying monster or not, the cultural oxygen of modern life. The film opens with the oft-quoted biblical book, Nahum, the minor prophet, no one quotes. And yet here it is, Nahum 3.6. I will cast uh, uh, abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. Nineveh as Hollywood. What does that go back to? 1991. My daddy, he didn't leave me much. You know, he's a very simple man, but what he did tell me was this. He said, you know, it's possible to become so defiled in this world that your own father and mother, mother will abandon you. And if that happens, God will always believe in your own ability to mean your own ways. What connects to this is the ball of confusion chapter. Ball of com- confusion where everything uh, is not so simple. You may be hallucinating, making too much of all, blowing everything out of proportion. You, might, you just might be a difficult person to get along with. Ball of confusion, looking at what does this mean? Everything is ruined and tainted. The trailer for Nope, soundtrack, Ball of Confusion. It's all right there. We also have my favorite slide that I will use for every presentation from now on, is Don Draper listening to some folk music. We have Mad Men, and of course, we have not enough time to go into Mad Men's uh, delirium with, with Dylan. There's a lot of ways into it. Obviously, this scene when he's listening to the yes, anachronistic version of Don't Think Twice but getting at to what it means. And of course, if you know the, the show, this is when he's at this moment where he's projecting himself into the, the, the idea of what a, what a, um, a slide um, projector can mean. And this idea of, of timelines past that don't connect to the present and what that means in terms of a kind of a horrifying moment of self-reflection. But then you go to Dylan. And Dylan and Don Draper, and I'm not going to give away, but that is a huge book that needs to be written. And what Dylan says There stands a glass. Like with many men who reinvent themselves, the details get a bit dodgy. Later on, he says, there's lots of reasons folks change their names. No, and there are those who change their own names either on the run or for some reason some unseen demon or heading towards something else. But what else is there? Besides this, there is, of course, uh, um, the street where you live, which is in the opening Episode of season one when after you think when you think Don when you think Don Draper is off on his own doing his fun life and then he comes home and you go oh the punchline is there's the wife and the kids you just didn't know about it and that's the victim own song that's playing kind of getting at like okay, here's the romance but here's the reality at the end there's where or when I think that song and we've touched on that a lot today already goes into a lot of different places. I think Where or When is a beautiful essay. I think it also is the essay that has uh, a different photograph of this, but the the clocks uh, outside of the Paris Railroad, where it's a rail station where all the clocks are at different times, which is exactly what you need when you're in Paris looking for a train. It is a bronze catastrophe uh, warning you that no time is real. But I think it's also getting at this fusion of what all this represents. There's a painting from 1905. Uh, by Solberg, a painting called uh, The Country Road. And it's a beautiful, evocative painting. It's, it's a really deep painting. And it's this idea that you have a country road that is bisected by these telephone wires. But what I love about it is it gets at the ambiguity of all because it's marking the present and the future. It doesn't really have a value system. You can, believe, you can read into that and say, now we're separated by technology, or you read into it and say, this is what's connecting us. There's something really beautiful and evocative of this idea of what the modern world has lost what the modern world can regain and the idea of course that we can't do it at all and then we of course have because of laura Tinchert, who uh, has very much slowly brought me into understanding the visual artist of bob i want to end with this and this of course is lone star the film lone star from uh, dozens of years ago now (laughs) Uh, a beautiful ending of a film where the two main people, if you have seen it, I will not say another word about it, but they come to a, a problematic moment in their relationship. And they're sitting at this empty movie screen and projecting it onto that. And what does Bob do? He takes it and makes it his own thing, obviously taking from this still. But this conversation, this idea of what is, what is, what is here, what is real, what, is, what, what can we project to our own past? How does our own past project itself onto this future? The creaking ropes of the buried camera in Nope, spitting out chemical images of the metaphoric and real, the nostalgia of bad Men, the slide projector clacking and shuddering, John Sayles' Lone Star, where they're dealing with the falseness of memory and what that even means. Not new, but a nuanced ambivalence runs through all of this. Finally, Jeff Slate had that wonderful interview with Bob Dylan in the Wall Street Journal, and he asked him, how do you listen to music? I listen to CDs, satellite radio, streaming. That sounds normal, right? I do love the old sound of of vinyl, though, and he goes on that he says, you had no idea it was coming down the road and it didn't matter. The laws of time didn't apply to you. For where or when, Dylan ends with music transcends time by living within it, just as reincarnation allows us to transcend life by living it again and again. The outmoded camera, the slide projector, the drive-in movie the stacked clocks, the telephone poles, bisecting nature, bisecting time. It is a rejection of the new and a grasping of the old. Is it fetishistic? We go back to Chronicles in the Sun Pie section when he's going through all those kind of old conglomeration of, of ideas and things. The archive of memory rejects any simple cataloging. But it's these images that run through Dylan's book, and it is here where he is so clearly delineating the contemporary moments of cultural discontent. Philosophy, yes. Modern, yes. Songs, yes. But I think ultimately, it's something larger as a questioning of where we are, where we've been, and what can we do in the future moment.
2: Thank
0: you. So my title is The, the Future For Me Is Already A Thing of the Past, Philosopher's Nostalgic Dilemma and the Philosophy of Modern Song. Bob Dylan clearly loves the past, and the philosophy of modern song is steeped in seeming nostalgia. Almost every song selection is old, a few very old. The photos and illustrations are mostly vintage, many in black and white. The prose itself is old-fashioned, harkening back to the hip rhythms of the beats and the diction of the hard-boiled detective novel. Even the themes of the book are often backward-looking, the casual sexism the risible machismo, the dated references. I could tell you the origins of the term nostalgia that it was coined in the 18th century by a Swiss physician to describe a mysterious madness associated with the homesickness experienced by Swiss soldiers during deployment. Or that by now, no longer a malady, it has been reconceived as a mere fondness for the past, particularly an idealized or romanticized past or as Dylan calls it, the sanitized versions of life. I could tell you about all that, but I won't. I will tell you that the one problem nostalgics have is that to be truly nostalgic, one must eschew optimism. After all, to focus on the past as ideal makes moving forward undesirable if not impossible. The only future that nostalgics long for is one that replicates a past that never really was. This is the dead end of all retrograde ideologies, such as MAGA and other lost causes. And backward-looking trends, such as vinyl records. Unless you are willing to force a future based on the false past, there is nowhere to dwell but back in a misremembered past. And that past has passed, if it ever existed. In the specific case of vinyl records, it has passed with a skip and a hiss, and maybe another skip. Another skip. Another skip. Wait. Okay. Yes, Dylan loves the past and lovingly pays tribute to it in the philosophy of modern song. But for Dylan, as this book makes clear, the past is just fodder for the future. It's merely a source that feeds the pastiche nature of his art and thinking. He builds anew from the pieces of the past. He assembles his philosophy from what we can preserve while always looking for the next thing. As has been established, particularly in the last quarter century, Dylan's writing technique is roughly parallel to that of his metallic sculptures. Elaborate and wholly new constructions, framed by old scraps, many unremarkable and otherwise forgotten. A newness literally assembled from the old. Moreover, his nostalgic tone furthers his irony and highlights satiric moments. If nostalgia is a fondness for an ideal past, Dylan cannot be a nostalgic, for as a creator, is an undoubted, if cynical, optimist. The philosophy of modern song is quite deceptive. On its surface, it looks like a slightly undersized coffee table book. The black and white cover features retro red lettering. The cover photo itself at first may seem familiar, one you've seen many times. But look again. Sure, there's little Richard, but he's posing with whom? On the right is Eddie Cochran, a promising young rock musician who died in a car crash at age 21. In the middle, the only one with an instrument is Alice Leslie, one of the many female Elvises who seem about as historically abundant as the new Dylans. Her career also ended abruptly at the age of 21 when she quit. The photos and illustrations throughout are so old that some of the more modern ones can be a bit jarring, such as... The sudden appearance of Nabulian Jackson Brown outside a tour bus that sports the image of a launching space shuttle for some reason. It's a great shot of Brown, but it does not fit with the black and white vintage images, the old time movie posters and advertisements, the retro postcards, the side show signage, the paparazzi snapshots, and the myriad photos of random older folks doing older folks' things. The colorized photo on the back cover anticipates, if a back cover can anticipate, the nearly a dozen photos of record stores, record displays, record labels, record factories, and just plain records that are sprinkled throughout with nary an image of an 8 track set or CD, let alone an MP3 player. It is much the same with the song selection, which skews old, older, and older still, challenging the implication of modern in the book title. The second most recent recording that appears is 2003's Dirty Life and Times by Warren Zevon. Itself a look back in time, albeit a more jaundiced and personal look than Dylan's. By far the oldest composition in the book is Nelly Was a Lady by Stephen Foster. In a twist that is almost fitting for this collection of turns, Dylan's chapter on Foster's song cites bluesman Alvin Youngblood Hart's version from 2004, a year after Zevon's recording. Thus, the oldest song is represented by the most recent recording. In line with the hoary song selection is the diction and patter of Dylan's prose, which sometimes reads like Raymond Chandler, The Hipster Years. It is a charming combination, quick, quirky, canny, and occasionally cranky, that, as many have noted, recalls Dylan's style from his theme time radio hour days. Here, too, as with the illustrations, occasional contemporary references or language Rip us from the lull of Dylan's retro style. It's extraordinary how many chapters, sections, paragraphs, and sentences in the philosophy of modern song start with the time designators such as back in the day, in the past, today, nowadays. Even Dylan's commentary on contemporary culture is steeped in comparison with bygone days. One of my favorites is from the chapter on the Who's My Generation. Recently, we have entered a new phase where anyone entering the age of 22 as of 2019 is now a member of Generation Z. While people make jokes about millennials, that group is now old news, as obsolete as all the previous generation. The Baby boomers, Gen X, the Fragile Generation, the Intermediates, the Neutrals, the Dependable, the Unshaken, the Clean Slate. By the way, has anybody else noticed that all of those titles would make great band names Dylan's sardonic take on the industry of generational labeling distances him from all generations even his own it betrays no allegiance to any particular period, past or present so much for the voice of his generation in contrast, the chapter on Sonny Burgess' unreleased late 50s number Feels So Good is one of the most explicitly nostalgic in content ending with the zinger this is the sound that made America great your mind might have automatically added in again there at the end, a phrase Dylan slyly employed in full earlier in the chapter. Maybe you're wondering what happened to the late great country you grew up with or how you can make America great again. Dylan's evocation of this charged slogan seems apolitical and in fact once more sardonic. You're not supposed to recoil in horror, nor are you supposed to pump your fist in the air and say, USA. Instead, he inspires a knowing smile, and a chuckle. At least that's how it worked for me. On top of that, much of the chapter is a moral rant about drunk drug use for some reason. Other passages throughout the book drip with longing for the bygone, whether it be his ongoing affection for old-time sociopathic outlaws, his fretting over the way religion is practiced nowadays as a thing that must be journeyed, as a chore, or the passage on Hank Williams' Your and Heart, which says that That's the problem with a lot of things these days. That everything is too niche and overly fussed with. Even that phrase, overly fussed with. But even this curmudgeonly rant is offset in the next passage when Dylan tongue-in-cheek speculates about Williams singing all the hits of the day. How much is that doggie? Hey, sirrah, sirrah. And stardust. We see this pattern again and again. A nostalgic romp juxtaposed to or immersed in humor sarcasm, or jolting contrast. That rant about religion these days morphs into a riff about the excitement Dylan experiences while reading the book of Job, a rant that concludes with the seeming non-secular, here's another way to look at a love song. As he says in that same paragraph, context is everything. Dylan does make an argument, not an original one, in favor of old media. We all shared baseline cultural vocabulary. People who wanted to see the Beatles on a variety show had to watch flamenco dancers, baggy pants comics, ventriloquists, and maybe even a scene from Shakespeare. That shared experience opened minds to new realities and possibilities, whereas he continues, Today, the medium contains multitudes, and a man need only pick one thing he likes and feast exclusively on a stream dedicated to it. It's the old, we used to have a shared national knowledge base and therefore a shared national discourse argument. Not entirely untrue. He also expresses his fondness for old movies, not a revelation to most of the people in this room. It's hard though not to imagine that he included The Drifter's 1964 song, Saturday Night the Movies, solely so he could wax on, not for the first time, about some of his favorite films, mostly in black and white. Indeed, not once does he mention the ostensible topic of Chapter 64, that being the Drifters and their song. He only discusses movies. The chapter ends with another slyly dismissive MAGA reference. People keep talking about making America great again. Maybe they should start with the movies. Dylan's last chapter on Dion and the Belmont summarizes his view of how the past informs the present. He lists items that have more or less remained the same over time and concludes, "You can be absolutely sure that it has happened before, it'll happen again. It's inevitable. If it's not happening now, it wasn't happening then or ever. So much of this sounds like nostalgia, right? That praise for the past that implicitly or explicitly deprecates the present and holds little hope for the future. It is important, though, to watch the juxtapositions of theme, word and image, and so to, so on to catch on to the nuance of Dylan's message here. One small example of how this might work, that chapter on Saturday Night the Movies when Dylan proposes making America great again by making movies great again, also features a black and white World War II era Ouija photo of a ropey sailor awkwardly grabbing a woman in a movie theater. The woman's clothes are a bit disheveled, and while her face is largely obscure, She seems either indifferent or unconscious at the moment. The two other moviegoers in the frame are less interested in both the movie and the nearby maritime explorations than they are in the creepy photographer lurking in the dark. If this is the scene Dylan chooses to represent the superiority of erstwhile movie viewing, what does that really mean to make movies great again, let alone America? A little more exploration of the one chapter in particular will help illustrate what Dylan is up to. Chapter 25 on bluesman Johnny Taylor's 1973 number, It's Cheaper to Keeper, is arguably the most sexist in the philosophy of modern song, and is one of several chapters where the song and the artist barely make a cameo. In it, Dylan uses the song to launch a broadside on divorce lawyers as a race of greedy manipulators who are by definition in the destruction business, who feign innocence with blood on their hands. He also approvingly notes that in bygone days, God-fearing members of the community regularly gave divorced folks the skunk-eye for being generally untrustworthy. Later he preaches about the laws of God that override the laws of man. He is out-and-out sententious about the duty of divorced parents to support a child before determining that, ultimately. Marriage is for the sake of those children. He then concludes, matter-of-factly, and a couple who has no children, then that's not a family. They are just two friends. I generally recoil at commentators who drag Dylan's biography into every discussion of his work, but I would be remiss if I did not mention that this man, Bob Dylan, has been married and divorced at least twice himself, which certainly explains his animus for divorce lawyers, but not his preachy traditional marriage screed. This, of course, is all a prelude to the noxious solution he will propose at the end of the chapter. And subsequently, we are treated to Dylan's polygamist fantasy, which starts as an argument specifically for a polygyny. He then doubles down on his inherent sexism, with his assumption that with multiple divorces, it is the man who has to pay all that support. Then this anti-feminist, self-pitying salvo. Women's rights crusaders and women's lib lobbyists take turns putting man, no, not a man, putting man back on his heels until he is pinned against the eight ball, dodging the shrapnel from the smashed glass ceiling. Woo, fix those metaphors, Bobby. But wait, there's more. He now tinges his defense of his anti-feminism with misogyny, arguing that any downtrodden woman would welcome a rich man's protection as part of some sort of arrow. It's a statement worthy of Alex Jones minus the dietary supplements. In another, yet another twist, Dylan then helpfully points out that he never explicitly precluded the concept of polyandry before sarcastically declaring, Have at it, ladies. There's another glass ceiling for you to break. And what does this all have to do with nostalgia? Well, first, there are retrograde attitudes, obviously. Is this Dylan pining for the casual sexism of yore? What also about the language you while glass ceiling is still a prevalent term, it's rather old, but still we still use it, women's lib is moribund, even archaic. When was the last time you heard that phrase used in conversation? When I Googled it, all the first page hits, I was too lazy to go to the second page, all the first page hits were explorations of the term, not actual usage in the vernacular. I bet there are younger readers who don't even recognize that term. The affronted reader may not even notice it slip by. As with other similar sections and passages, this obnoxiousness is accompanied by exaggerated language, extremist posturing, odd or comical images, and other hijinks. All this is to suggest that there is a wink-wink here, accompanied by a nod-nod. In her book, Irony's Edge, Linda Hutchin describes the meta-ironic marker, the textual or visual indicator that one is in the presence of irony. The meta-ironic marker is the equivalent of a tongue planted firmly in the cheek or a finger to the nose. The oddball factoids Dylan includes, the jarring juxtapositions, the sly illustrations, the knowing tone, the sudden reversals, and even the curmudgeonly tone that pervades the text work as meta-ironic markers that enable us to get Dylan's irony. So how does this irony work? I would argue that Dylan's irony here is meant sometimes just to amuse, and sometimes to further a satiric point. I'm not suggesting that the philosophy of modern song falls into the genre of satire, but it is, like much of Dylan's output, a work that contains satiric elements without being fully satiric. Case in point, it's cheaper to keep her. A fairly knuckleheaded song all by itself, a churlish novelty number the product of a clueless ear that may induce a mordant grin or a low groan. But Dylan's riffing on women's lib and the mechanics of polygamy ultimately punch up the song's ideological shortcomings. After four pages without having once mentioned the subject matter of the chapter, Dylan just out of the blue ends it with, It's cheaper to keep her indeed. Dylan employs flagrantly sexist tropes in other chapters as well, notably the one on witchy woman. But meta-ironic markers arise there, too. My favorite being the um, chapter's two literal portrait of the five members of the Eagles band. So this is the philosopher's dilemma in Philosophy of Modern Song. How can you simultaneously honor the past, critique the past, and build the future upon it? Dylan loves the past, but he is not delusional about its shortcomings. The past is a component, an ingredient in the fragilist recipe that Dylan is whipping up in his Promethean kitchen that he uses boorish jokes, odd and deflating juxtapositions, a few bizarre choices, and even flagrantly outdated thinking at once obscures his mission and marks it. People talk about Dylan's overlooked humor, but he is even less recognized for his considerable accomplishments as a satirist. He's quite good. In Philosophy of Modern Song, when he plays the curmudgeon, the fuddy-duddy, the the stick-in-the-mud, shaking his harmonica rack at the kids in the neighborhood, screaming, get off my private beach, while carping on the nation's decline, he's evoking a faux nostalgia that serves a more complex purpose. Dylan's not much of a philosopher, at least not anymore than he is nostalgic. He's not out to write a philosophy of song. He seeks to tease out the philosophy in the songs. But not interested in academic exegesis, He opts instead for a more subtle, dangerous, and interesting approach, using style to make substantive points. Dylan regularly traffics in humor, irony, and satire, perhaps just for the fun of it. And all this old stuff, though, is just materials for Dylan's next work, be it a song, book, or whatever. Dylan loves the past as it serves his creative future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Dillentons podcast. Be sure to subscribe to have the Dillentons sent directly to your inbox. And share the Dillentons on social media.